From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, gene expression and sarcoid. We think interferons are really critical in the pathogenesis of sarcoidosis, and we believe that blocking that interferon pathway is a logical therapeutic avenue for sarcoid. First this. If time and money were no object, you'd probably go to a lot of meetings. Not just ASCRS, but ESCRS, APACRS, AAO, Hawaiian Eye, and Winter Update, and you'd learn a ton. But money is an issue, and time an even bigger one. That's why I go to all of those meetings for you speak with the presenters you'd like best, and get them to distill their talks down to just a few minutes. You can see all of these interviews at no cost at the iWorld Replay website. Just go to ewreplay.org, E-W-R-E-P-L-A-Y.org, and enjoy. Although sarcoidosis is a clinical entity with a characteristic presentation and histopathology, the underlying pathogenesis is incompletely understood. As an inflammatory disease, identifying a singular genotype would probably be an unfruitful approach. Jim Rosenbaum, my guest today, took the approach of assaying gene expression and developing an expression profile with which to compare sarcoid to other orbital inflammatory diseases. I'm delighted to welcome Jim, the lead author of this important paper, as my guest today. We identify sarcoidosis as a granulomatous inflammatory pathology. Can I get you to describe the pathogenesis of sarcoidosis? So the pathogenesis of sarcoidosis, of course, is not fully known. It's a bit speculative, but we think that there is probably an antigenic exposure, something in the environment that triggers that granulomatous reaction. And arguably, the the best candidate would be something like tuberculosis or tuberculosis itself. The data are pretty good that at least in a subset of patients, um, there's evidence that products related to tuberculosis are present in that granuloma. Sarcoidosis can affect, obviously, many tissues. Is the underlying histopathology in each of these tissues the same? Well, there's an overlap. There's the non-caseating granuloma. So I'm far from an expert pathologist. I rely on expert pathologists to collaborate with me. But you should find a non-caseating granuloma in any tissue affected by sarcoid. Obviously, skin's going to look different from lungs, going to look different from lymph node, going to look different from liver, going to look different from lacrimal, but non-casein granulomas in each location. Sure. You studied gene expression. Now, there's an important distinction to be made between gene expression and the genome of those affected. And, and, And that is to say, is the parameter for which you were looking the presence of particular genes or the expression of genes that are found more widely in the non-sarcoid population? Yeah, it's it's the latter. It's the expression of genes. So in every cell in your body, the genome, the DNA, would be the same. But the genes that are expressed in skin are different from the genes that are expressed in retina, different from the genes that are expressed in iris. So 
we looked at the genes that are expressed. So we're looking on a messenger RNA level rather than a DNA level or further down the line on a protein level. Great. I was just going to ask that. And by what means do you study gene expression? So there are a couple alternative ways. We, in particular, use microarray. So uh, microarray involves uh, a platform about the size of a microscope slide. And onto that slide, you spot various complementary DNAs. Uh, In our particular uh, platform, we have more than 50,000 complementary DNAs that are spotted onto the slide. And then we isolate the RNA from tissue, we convert it to cDNA, and we hybridize it to that microscope slide. We ask, you know, what complementary uh, cDNAs have we produced? And we can quantify the binding in those 50,000 plus spots to um, get a pattern of gene expression. That's the platform we use, but there are a couple of other techniques and many people are switching to a little different technology, which is called RNA-seq, S-E-Q for sequencing. And with RNA-seq, you exploit that most messenger RNAs have something called a poly-A tail, adenosines all in a row. And you can design primers so you can amplify all the RNAs and then use mass sequencing to look at what RNAs are expressed in a tissue. So even though we have more than 50,000 probe sets on our slide, we still don't have everything. Whereas with RNA-seq, you theoretically could look at every single message in that tissue. So we're, we're confined to only known RNAs. With RNA-seq, you know, you might just find that needle in a haystack, the, the unexpected RNA that you had no idea that it was there. You don't even know the, the function, but it turns out to be strongly associated with a disease like sarcoidosis. Right. I, I follow what you're saying. And in both assays, the uh, type of, of RNA that is uh, being uh, sought is the mRNA. Is, is that correct? The messenger RNA, exactly right. Our, our work uh, involves an international collaboration. So, you know, sarcoidosis involving adipose tissue in the orbit or the lacrimal gland is just not common. And in order to have an adequate number of tissues, we collaborated with an investigators in Saudi Arabia, one in Australia, one in Canada, and many other sites throughout the United States. Um, when we started, microarray was less expensive than RNA-seq. Um, the cost of sequencing has come down radically so that if I were to start again in 2015, I'd look strongly at using RNA-seq as an alternative methodology. So we, we got a lot of information from the microarray. It may be that the, the people who stand on our shoulders are going to use RNA-seq and derive even more information. Sure. So what was the question, the specific question that your study sought to answer? Well, 
I'd say there were basically two questions. One is sarcoid can involve either adipose tissue in the orbit or the lacrimal gland. How similar are those two entities? And then how do those two entities compare with how sarcoid expression would be in blood? And the, the blood, you know, right now our blood tests for sarcoid are pretty horrible. So, you know, the, the common tests are the angiotensin converting enzyme or the lysozyme. And neither one is very sensitive or very specific. So by looking at these patterns of gene expression, we hope to, to understand whether the pathogenesis in two distinct tissues, fat and uh, tear gland, would be the same. But we were also hoping that maybe we could discover genes expressed in the blood that would reflect what's going on in the tissue and ultimately we could exploit that information for a diagnostic test and we could also potentially exploit the information to better understand the pathogenesis. For the purpose of this study, how was the diagnosis of sarcoidosis made? Right. So we had a, a dozen collaborating centers and we asked each center, which hopefully was an expert center, to make the diagnosis. And then we had two independent pathologists who looked at that tissue and said, yes, we agree this tissue has a non-caseating granuloma. Now, non-caseating granuloma by itself is not sufficient to diagnose sarcoid, but then the centers provided us additional clinical information that uh, the subjects had adenopathy or a skin biopsy or some other factors that would confirm or support the diagnosis of sarcoidosis. Jim, you, you touched on this, but can I get you to describe the design of your study? The design is multi-center. It's retrospective. So the, the biopsies we acquired were fixed in formalin. Um, and then it's this molecular technology and a very sophisticated statistical platform to compare because we're doing basically more than 50,000 statistical comparisons. The, the formula fixation is sort of, it's a very important in, in the design. What formalin does, of course, is it degrades nucleic acids, it degrades proteins, and we're trying to amplify those nucleic acids that have been degraded. So a better source of tissue would have been a frozen biopsy. There would be less degradation of the RNA. But we reasoned that we wanted to develop a platform that one day in the future will allow you to diagnose sarcoid uh, and we also wanted to get clinical information, and by getting a formalin biopsy, we could potentially obtain several years of information after the biopsy was obtained. So, and we also wanted uniformity. So, if we were going to get samples mailed to us from Saudi Arabia, it was a bigger barrier to have a frozen sample mailed as opposed to a formalin fixed sample. So, working with formalin, we had to select primers that would amplify the messenger RNA 
but would amplify short enough sequences that they were unlikely to be degraded by the formalin fixation. What were your results? What were your findings? Well, so we weren't very surprised that um, if you compare normal adipose tissue from the orbit with tissue affected by sarcoid, there actually are several thousand RNAs that are increased in the sarcoid-affected tissue, and there are a couple thousand that are also decreased. And the same is true in lacrimal. If you look at normal lacrimal gland as opposed to lacrimal affected by sarcoid, there are numerous genes that are upregulated, numerous genes that are downregulated. We, we tried to define up and down regulated. We wanted at least a 50% increase over the normal, and we wanted um, what we call a false discovery rate, which is like a p-value, but uh, more appropriate when you're doing these multiple statistical tests. So we wanted a false discovery rate less than 05, 0.05. So even using those criteria, we found many, many genes up or down regulated compared to normal. But what was most important is we found 60 or so in common in the lacrimal and in the adipose tissue and also in common with blood from patients with sarcoidosis. And that, that, that of course, speaks to the idea of an underlying histopathogenesis in, um, in, in these different tissues from this common pathology. Exactly, exactly. And it, I mean, it, obviously, sarcoid tends to be a multi-system disease. It wouldn't, shouldn't surprise you too much that the blood would reflect what's going on in organs that are affected. So we and our collaborators have also previously looked at uh, lymph nodes affected by sarcoid. We've looked at lung affected by sarcoid. Um, and some of the, the signals that we're picking up, we've also been able to pick up in lung and lymph node. An example would be the transcription factor STAT1. Rather than specifically pointing to um, upregulation or downregulation of this gene or of that gene, what you did, what you did is you 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 developed um, a a a gene expression profile um, for for the for the pathology. And my my next question deals with the specificity of of this this profile. How do your findings compare with gene expression studies of other orbital inflammatory diseases, and how specific? are the gene expression profiles for sarcoidosis as opposed to Wagner's GPA or, or Graves' ophthalmopathy? Yeah, no, it's a terrific question. Um, that's actually where our study began. Um, we began with a curiosity about orbital pseudotumor, um, which we like to refer to as nonspecific orbital inflammation and other people call idiopathic orbital inflammation. Um, but we really wanted to know what is pseudotumor. And so not only did we collect biopsies from subjects who had sarcoidosis, we collected biopsies from patients with Graves' disease. We collected biopsies from patients who have granulomatosis with polyangiitis, the um, more in vogue term that's replaced Wegner's. We collected the normal biopsies from people with no known disease, and then we collected the pseudotumor biopsies. And 
um, for each one, we, we think there's a signature. Um, and that shouldn't be too surprising either. Um, a, a good analogy is ocular melanoma. You know that a melanoma in the eye is usually a relatively benign disease. If you can refer to a cancer as a benign disease, it's, it's not likely to be fatal. But there's a, a tiny subset of patients with ocular melanoma who have metastatic disease that can be fatal. And just looking under a microscope at that tissue, you can't tell which one is going to be bad prognostically and which is good prognostically. But if you look at the pattern of gene expression, you can tell virtually absolutely which tumor is going to confine itself mostly to the eye and which tumor is likely to metastasize to the liver. So that's called molecular diagnosis. And that kind of uh, analysis has been applied to other cancers like lymphomas, colon cancer, breast cancer. We, we call our approach molecular diagnosis for orbital inflammatory disease. And when, when we get this signature, um, we, we express the results with something called a principal coordinate analysis. So a principal coordinate analysis is a statistician's trick to take a really complex database and put it into one point in space so that if you get another complex database and you want to know how similar they are, if the two points in space are close together, they're very similar. If the two points are far apart, they're very different. So we get biopsies from people who have a healthy orbit, you know, say um, sometimes at the time of cosmetic surgery, sometimes for an enucleation, we can get some orbital fat. And um, those normal adipose tissue biopsies have a similar pattern of gene expression. And so on this principal coordinate analysis in three-dimensional space, they all cluster together. Whereas sarcoidosis looks very different and is very far apart from healthy tissue on principal coordinate analysis. Wegner's or GPA is different from sarcoid, but not very different. So Wegner's clusters way far away from the healthy, but very near to sarcoid. Interestingly, we thought Graves would have a real strong immunologic signal, but it turns out that Graves clusters very close to the normals. And then what, where's, GP, where, where's nonspecific orbital inflammation? Where's the disease that we set out? Well, it, it shouldn't surprise you too much that nonspecific orbital inflammation is heterogeneous. So every once in a while, we get someone who has been labeled NSOI and looks like sarcoid on gene expression. And occasionally, someone looks like thyroid eye disease on gene expression. But the majority, interestingly enough, look like GPA. We think that a lot of nonspecific orbital inflammation is actually a limited form of what we used to call Wegner's granulomatosis. And we also think that this has a beautiful therapeutic correlation so that um, there have been two 
randomized controlled trials showing that the B-cell depleting drug, rituximab, is efficacious for GPA when it involves lung and kidney. And my colleagues and I have reported that rituximab works very well for orbital inflammatory disease. Now, rituximab has been tried for thyroid eye disease, and there have been two randomized controlled trials. The one from the Mayo Clinic said it does not work, and that's been published. And that would fit with our gene expression that there's not a lot of inflammation and not a lot of B-cell signature in thyroid eye disease. But in nonspecific orbital inflammation, especially those that look like GPA, there's a really strong B-cell signature, and that fits with an excellent clinical response to this drug, rituximab. So we're not ready yet to roll this out as a way to design therapies, but you know, 10, 15 years from now, I think we're going to be diagnosing orbital disease molecularly on the basis of gene expression, and I think we're going to be selecting therapies on the basis of gene expression. That's really, really neat stuff. And it's neat the way that you have developed this sort of gene expression topology um, for for different pathologies. Now, you you sought out, you, you sought from the very start to create this, this expression profile um, for sarcoidosis. And I, I'm, I'm going to ask you something that's a, an, an extension of that, was obviously not the, the focus of the, the study which is what do the upregulated and downregulated gene expression profiles tell us about the underlying pathophysiology of sarcoid? One of the most consistent genes that uh, we find upregulated is STAT1. And STAT1 is a transcription factor, and it gets activated when different interferons bind to their cellular receptors. And we also find a number of genes that go downstream of STAT1 that get upregulated. If you delete interferon from a mouse, it has an impaired ability to make a granuloma. We think, and, and people who have been treated with interferons, such as the way we used to treat hepatitis C, was to give interferon, occasionally as a complication, they get a sarcoid-like disease. They get granulomas. So we think interferons are really critical in the pathogenesis of sarcoidosis, and we believe that blocking that interferon pathway is a logical therapeutic avenue for sarcoid. Now, obviously, when you tamper with the immune response, you need to be careful, and you can tamper too well and set yourself up for infections. Um, But I think the right inhibitor will definitely have a huge impact on the ability of the body to form granulomas. This is a collaboration. This is... um, If you want to travel far, travel alone, but if you want to travel well, travel together. And there there are two dozen experts around the world who made this possible. And then there's a team with whom I work in, in Portland at Oregon Health and Science University who have the statistical knowledge and the molecular knowledge and the histopathological knowledge that I lack that 
you know, has really made this possible. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Jim, I want to thank you very, very much for, for being so generous with, with your time. This is really, really cool. I'm glad to get some credit for the work for those who have done it. James Rosenbaum is professor of ophthalmology, medicine, and cell biology at the Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. His paper, Parallel Gene Expression Changes in Sarcoidosis Involving the Lacrimal Gland, Orbital Tissue, or Blood, appears in the July 2015 issue of JAMA Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Rosenbaum or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.